You guys can have a seat. Hey, if you're here for the first time with us today, I'm so glad that you're here. Um, I don't believe that it's an accident that you're here today. Uh, And I just want to kind of give you guys a heads up. Next week is Easter. Yeah, we're excited. Praise the Lord. And we're going to be baptizing on Easter Sunday. And so if you have never been baptized uh, and you have professed faith in Christ, next Sunday, I want to encourage you to come and talk to us uh, or... And, and hopefully we'll be able to baptize you after we have a conversation. So um, today we're in John 19. We're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus, um, reflecting on his death and burial leading up to next week where we're going to uh, celebrate Jesus' resurrection. But Jesus' crucifixion where he died on a cross, you know, I think we can agree, has become a pretty commonplace and normalized in our culture. Like if, if someone knows the name of Jesus, they may say something like, yes, uh, Jesus was a nice, good man, and didn't he also die on the cross? You know, there are very few people that deny or doubt that a man named Jesus died on a cross. It's just a widely agreed upon historical fact. There's really, there really aren't any good, uh, there's not really any good debate over this. The debate comes in on who Jesus claims to be. Like, was he simply a rabbi? Uh, was he a good teacher? Was he a nice man? Or was he the son of God, the Messiah, that came to take away the sin of the world? Uh, the, the debate is around the resurrection. And as we'll see today, the author of John, yes, he wants to tell the story of the cross, but as we'll see, the author of John, he focuses more on showing that Jesus was who he said he was. That Jesus was the one that people predicted would come and do what he, what, do what he did hundreds and thousands of years before he actually died. So the author of the book of John is trying to show us and validate through the events of the cross that Jesus didn't just die, but rather Jesus died as the Son of God to take away the sins of the world. I mean, the entire book of John was written for that purpose. As the purpose statement, statement tells us in John 20, 31, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. And so at the very beginning of this book, in John 1, 29, if you remember, John the Baptist, who came to prepare the way for Jesus, he looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, as we just sang, who came to take away the sins of the world. And today, we see Jesus do just that where he becomes the sacrifice for us that had his blood shed at the cross for our sins, which leads us to our very simple main idea. Jesus was crucified for our sins. So just like last week, this week we'll be reminded yet again of our very simple gospel. And so if you came in today and you're not a Christian, we've got really good news like that is wrapped up in this idea. And and I'm praying that today you would hear this good news and respond in faith, that you would put your trust in Jesus. Because you and I, each of us, we walked in today, we walked in with sin. (laughs) We have all disobeyed God. We have all broken God's moral law. And the Bible tells us the penalty for our sin is death. Which to that I say, welcome to New City. We love you uh, and we are so glad that you're here. But the good news that we'll see today was that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Like Jesus went in our place. He went instead of us. And as we read and tell the story of the cross today, I don't want us to think of this as some far off historical uh, fairy tale or story that has nothing to do with our lives today. No, what we'll see today is that the cross, it's deeply personal to each of our own lives. 
The cross is not a piece of art. It's not a, or a historical artifact. No, the cross, it's deeply personal. It's a symbol of God's love for each of us. It's like his love letter to us. Jesus went to the cross intentionally and purposefully with you and me on his heart and mind. He had your neighbor on his mind. He had your family on his mind, your coworker on his heart and mind as he went to the cross. And what we'll see today is more than just a grueling, bloody, gory, torturous death. It was an act of divine love. Like the cross, it was an act of divine love for the whole world to see so that we could have a way to be rescued from our sin. And maybe you're thinking, like, why do I need to be rescued from my sin? Maybe thinking, like, I'm, I'm kind of okay. Thinking, no, my life's not perfect, but I'm here, I'm alive, my sin doesn't seem all that bad. And there's several ways that we could approach this, that I, and how I want us to think about the cross. And it's not starting with our sin, but rather starting with God. Because when we understand what we gain with God, whatever then keeps us from God, we want gone. And from what we've seen through the book of John is that God is our source of full life. God is our source of satisfaction and purpose. There is a deep and abiding satisfaction that can be found with God that never runs out. So God created us to be with God and to be satisfied from God and to be guided by God like that's the way that he created us to live. But yet our sin, just one of them, separates us from God. Our sin, it separates us from the source of satisfaction. Because this is what I know to be true. We all look out at the world, and we know something's not right, relationships are strained, people are mean, we can be selfish and prideful, and life doesn't always work out the way we want or dream for it to happen. There's just a natural inner desire and longing that every human has, longing for the world to be different than it is. Like we want our kids to behave, we want work to not be toilsome, we don't want to be lonely or feel isolated. And in our longing for the world to be different, every human tries to fix it on our own. But the problem is, we can't. In our own efforts, we fall short. Yes, there are temporary means to satisfaction, but I think we can all agree they don't last. That person or that relationship or that dream job or that pay raise or that next drink or passionate pursuit, they will only be momentary satisfactions because soon enough, Life happens and the satisfaction wears off. But what we'll see today with Jesus at the cross was Jesus telling the world that he has made a way that he came to be our redeemer. Jesus didn't come to make this life better, but he came to give us hope and to be the satisfaction that will never run dry. And the cross where Jesus died, a bloody, grueling death, is God making a way for that to happen. And so if you're here today and life is hard, the call for us is to remember the cross. Because the story of the cross is our reminder that God made a way to hope and lasting satisfaction. So we're going to have three points today. Number one, the crucifixion. Number two, the fulfilled prophecies. And number three, the finished work. So the first point, we're going to simply read and tell the story of the cross. The second point, we're going to focus what the author focuses on and will hopefully be a reminder of the firm foundation of our faith to give us a confidence that we're not crazy for believing these things. And then lastly, in the third point, what, will, uh, what all of this means for us today, just in more practical terms. And so we'll tell the story in point one, we'll engage our minds in point two, uh, and we'll bring it to everyday life in point three, and then we're going to call it a day. Okay, so let's go ahead and jump in. 
to number one, the crucifixion. Okay, so uh, just to refresh our minds of the narrative in the book of John up to this point, this is the time of the year, is Passover, where the Jews are remembering uh, and celebrating uh, being saved from the rule of Pharaoh. And back in John 12, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, and the Jews were waving palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, essentially saying, praise King Jesus. And this was about five days before we pick up today. Uh, We now call that day Palm Sunday, which for us in 2022 is today, as we've talked about, putting us a week from the resurrection. And then Jesus, then he had a long dinner with his people. He leaves the dinner. He goes into a garden. He was betrayed. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, arrested by soldiers. He was denied by Peter. He was taken to the high priest and questioned. And he was then, as we saw last week, put on trial with the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And then at the end of last week, we saw Jesus flogged, whipped, beaten, crowned with, a thorn of, crowned with thorns, and given a purple robe, being mocked and presented to the Jewish nation. And they all shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And then we pick back up with our story starting in John 19, verse 16. This is what it says. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So something that's interesting that I just want to point out here is that there really isn't much detail of the actual crucifixion. Like it simply says, he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is also known as Calvary, if you've heard that before. And then it says, they crucified him. And we see that he was crucified in the middle of two others, showing that Jesus was considered the worst of these three that he was, he was crucified between. But that's all it says. It says he bore his own cross and he was crucified. It doesn't give much detail about the gore and the physical pain of the cross. And likely because it was just commonplace. Because they knew exactly what was going to happen because it happened so frequently. I mean, being crucified, it was a Roman form of death for criminals. And Jews, however, they didn't do that. Rather, Jews, they stoned people. And so in essence, when when they crucified Jesus, what they did is they put a cross beam that likely weighed about 100 pounds across Jesus' shoulders, and they had him carry it outside of the city. Remember, Jesus at this point had already been whipped and beaten with cords that had sharp ends that were made to rip off his skin. So here is Jesus walking through Jerusalem, bleeding, carrying a hundred-pound cross, people weeping, many people laughing and probably mocking. And when they got to this place called the place of the skull, many were there, uh, where many people had been crucified. They put his cross upright with these two other criminals beside him. And with his arms stretched out, they nailed his hands and feet to the cross while he hangs there, like with just enough strength to slowly Gasp for air, one breath at a time, dying a slow and torturous death. Jesus was crucified, killed, and tortured. And yes, it was grueling and painful. And I think it's it's good for us to consider the physical pain and gore of the cross, but yet, I don't want the gore of the cross to overshadow the greatest pain of the cross. And do you know what the worst part was? It wasn't the physical pain of the cross. The worst part was when he took on the sin of the world that separated him from God. It separated Jesus from the source of his satisfaction. 
The greatest pain of the cross for Jesus was being separated from God the Father. Because remember, Jesus, he had a deep love and a deep devotion and connection to God. He found so much joy and satisfaction and intimacy with God. God was his greatest delight, his greatest treasure. Jesus had full life with God. It was perfect, never distracted, and an endless source of joy. And at the cross, all of that was taken from him completely and entirely. Like his source of endless satisfaction was gone in an instant. But may we remember, he didn't do all of this for our pity. He didn't do this. He did this. He didn't do, he didn't do this so that we would feel bad for him. No, Jesus did all of this as an act of love. It wasn't for our pity. It was for our faith. It was for our love. Because at the cross where Jesus died, as we've seen in this first point, it wasn't done to display his great, it, it was done to display his great love for us. New City, listen. I don't know how you came in today. I don't know where you are. But don't forget that the cross is God's great love letter to you. Listen to me. If you believe that you are not lovable, look to the cross. If you believe that you are not worthy or that you're worthless, look to the cross. If you believe that you're insignificant or by yourself or lonely or not worth rescuing, gaze your eyes upon the cross of Christ and remember that Jesus, the Son of God, came down to earth with you on his heart to say, I love you and I want you. He says to you that he, will, he gave up his life to have you. Do not believe the load of garbage that somehow makes you believe that you are not worthy and you have no worth because Jesus, he went to the cross and died to put a value on your life. The value of your life was declared at the cross. The value of your friend and your neighbor's life and your coworker's life and your family's life, they were all declared at the cross. Listen to me, church. May we not devalue that which God placed a value with his shed blood. Your value, friend, is seen at the cross and nothing else. And so as we continue to read and simply just tell the story, we're going to see several other details surrounding Jesus' crucifixion. But again, when it comes to the actual crucifixion, it doesn't say much more. And as we'll see, the author of John, he actually gives more insight into these other details surrounding his crucifixion. So let's keep reading, starting in verse 9. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. And then look what it says next. I think this is great. Look at verse 21 and 22. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am, this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. So the high priest, he didn't like what Pilate wrote, and he wanted him to fix it, and he didn't like what it said, and he didn't like that it said, Jesus, the king of the Jews. It seemed like a threat or possibly a mockery to the Jewish nation, and Pilate, who seemed to waffle in the past, he keeps it as it is. Let's keep reading. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier. Also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not fear it, but cast, tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. 
This was to fulfill this, what the scriptures uh, say. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And, we're, and so as we're reading this, I just want to stop and point out that it says in verse 24 for the first time that this was written to fulfill the scriptures. As we begin to see kind of what the author is emphasizing throughout the book, throughout this, this story of the cross. And look what it says next. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's were his mother and his mother's sisters, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciples took her the disciple took her to his own home. Okay, so we just saw four soldiers divide Jesus' garments almost kind of like souvenirs. And now, what we just saw in contrast were four women standing there watching Jesus in his agony on the cross, one of which was his mother. And so can you just imagine Mary as the mother of Jesus standing there watching her son that she cared for and nurtured and lived life with for 33 years, watching Jesus do all of these great things in his ministry and in his life. I mean, can you just imagine the agony and the pain and the turmoil of Mary as she's standing there watching her son crucified as an innocent man. So Mary, in this moment, I, I, I can't imagine just to be simply, uh, just, just only standing there. I imagine Mary standing there, wailing in grief, screaming in agony, watching her son die as the other women were standing there comforting her. And what does Jesus do as he's hanging on the cross, gasping for air, bleeding to death? He spots John, the disciple whom he loved, and he calls his mother, and he draws their attention towards one another. And then his disciple, John, took Mary to his house, likely to care for her. And so while Jesus is hanging on the cross, gasping for breath, he simply cares for his mother, and he continues to honor her, even on the cross. Which reminds us yet again that even in that even uh, in Jesus' darkest moments, he was still the good shepherd. New City, Jesus loves us. He loves his people so deeply that no matter the trouble, no matter the situation, Jesus will come to us and care for us and comfort us without fail. Even while Jesus was hanging on the cross, bleeding to get death, gasping for air, he was seeking to care for those that he loved. New City, we can trust with utmost confidence, no matter the situation, no matter how dark it may seem, we can trust that he'll do the same for us. Because again, the cross was an act of love. And we see here that he loved and cared deeply until the very end. Look what it says next in verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge of sour wine on hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So again, in what we just read, the author is emphasizing more seemingly just strange details. And so Jesus was hanging on the cross about to die and he said, I thirst. And so they gave him sour wine on a sponge. It seems very strange until we realize this happened, as it says, as a fulfillment of scripture. And then Jesus said three words, it is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit and it says, Jesus died. It was finished. Jesus did what he came to do. Jesus was born to die. 
And then as the story continues, if we were to continue reading, we'd see that we'd see, uh, they, they would take the bodies, they would take his body, the Jews asked if they could break their legs for them to die quicker, and they came to Jesus, saw that he was already dead. The soldiers then confirmed his death, and they took a spear and pierced his side. And blood and water came out instantly to confirm again that he was dead. So Jesus was confirmed not once but twice by Roman soldiers of his death. So Jesus wasn't just dead, like he was really dead. He was really, really dead. Look what it says in verse 36 and 37. Look what it says. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Again, more scripture and prophecy was fulfilled. This was John's focus as he was writing about Jesus' death. And as John 19 ends... We'd see Jesus' body prepared for burial. He was bound in linen cloth. He was covered in spices. And he was buried in a tomb, confirmed yet again to be dead. Like 100% dead. That's the story, as John records it, of Jesus' death and burial, which uh, completes our first point. Number one, the crucifixion. So again, the cross, it was an act of love. Jesus died for the sins of the world. Jesus' blood was shed. But what I want to focus on in our next point is what the author focuses on in the story. Number two, the fulfilled prophecies. So throughout the entire story of what we just read, the author focused on, uh, focused on all the details that showed Jesus as the Messiah that they were looking for. So we just kind of heard the drama of the story. Now I want you to try to, uh, try to stay with me and really put on your thinking caps for a few minutes. Okay, so we just saw the author briefly tell of Jesus' death and spend way more of his writing of the, on the fulfillment of Scripture, seeing Jesus' garments divided, seeing Jesus drink sour wine, seeing his bones uh, not broken and his side pierced. And we'll briefly look at these four fulfillments, but what, I want us to stop and think about this for a second. Like, why do you think the author would spend more time talking about the fulfillment of Scripture around his death more than his actual death? Because again, when it comes to the crucifixion, he simply says he was crucified. Like that's it. That's all it says. But follow me here. Like let's, let's remember why the author is writing this book. Again, John wrote this book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we would have life in his name. And up to this point in the book of John, he has appealed to the life of Jesus and his work and his ministry and his healings and his miracles. But now, through his death, the author is appealing to fulfilled prophecy to show and prove that he is the Christ. Because John knows that it's one thing for Jesus to die, but it's an entirely different thing for Jesus, the Son of God, to die. As the Messiah and the rescuer that was prophesied would come to take away the sins of the world. These things were spoken of hundreds of years before Jesus, and then they actually happened. And you know what John, why John is doing this? Because he knows his audience will wonder, is all of this real and true? A question that I think many of us often wonder. Like, is this whole following Jesus thing, is it even real and true? Like, are we crazy for believing this? We all ask these questions, do we not? God knows and confirms for us today yet again in, a, in another separate way that yes, this is real and true and no, we're not crazy. 
Because, yes, our faith is rational and logical. Jesus was the Son of God that died on the cross to take away the sins of the world. And so let's quickly consider just these four prophecies that John shows. Okay, so in Psalm 22, written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus, we know the people of Israel were looking for a king like David to be their new forever king. And in the other gospel accounts, Jesus quoted Psalm 22:1 and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Showing us that Psalm 22 was about Jesus, just like Jesus said was the case in John 5, that all the scriptures bear witness to him. And so we also see in Psalm 22 that King David was mocked and scorned. He had his clothes divided, casting lots for his clothes, just like John points out with the soldiers and Jesus at the cross, showing Jesus as the king that they've been looking for. And then in Psalm 69, another psalm filled with great grief and lament from King David. The psalmist says in verse 21, For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Where else do we see this happening? It says in John 19, it happened with Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. It says they gave him sour wine when he was thirsty. And then again in Psalm 34, a psalm of thanksgiving. King David writes in verse 19 to 20, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. And what happened after his death? They broke the bones of the other two guys that were with him, but not one of Jesus' bones were broken. And then lastly, the prophet Zechariah spoke of the coming king and Messiah in Zechariah 12.10 and said they would look on him whom they pierced and weep bitterly. And where was Jesus pierced? in his hands, in his feet, and then also, as we read today, in his side. And just to point something out that maybe you'll find interesting about this specific one, you know, when Jesus was pierced to bring salvation to God's people, as was predicted and prophesied back in Zechariah 12, I want to remind you that Zechariah's prophecies predicting this, it was 500 years before Jesus. And let's remember that in Israel's culture, they didn't pierce anything. Like, it was prohibited to pierce anything. Rather, uh, they, they stoned people. And so Zechariah's prophecy, when God said salvation will come through piercing, that was, it was like a really, really odd and strange thing to the Hebrew, to the Israel nation. And then fast forward 200 years, where the Roman and Israel cultures collided, which made a way for Jesus to then be pierced with a spear 300 years later after that by Roman soldiers. So New City, let this be a small reminder that God sees all and is sovereign over all, even nations and militaries and cultures. Where God, God makes promises and he fulfills them. And as we saw in our text for today, all of these things happen as a fulfillment of Scripture. And I don't point all of these things out because it's some cool Bible trick. And neither does the author of John. John points all of these things out because he wants to reaffirm and show again that Jesus was truly the Son of God that came to take away the sins of the world. And I want you all to think with me just for a few minutes more about all of this. Because I asked my, and I asked my nine-year-old this week if she would help me. Because I was trying to think, like, okay, why does this matter to us that Jesus fulfilled prophecy? Like, what's the big deal? And kind of thinking out loud, I asked uh, Addie, my daughter, if I told you in 10 days that mommy would walk into our house, clap three times, do a twirl, and sing the happy birthday song, and she did it, what would you think? She was like, I don't know, and then she kind of did like a handstand and while I was talking to her, you know, and then I asked again while she was upside down, um, I said, well, would you think I had like special powers? And she said, yeah, maybe, you know, and then she kind of thought about it. She's like, or you just got really lucky, I don't know. 
And then it all kind of clicked. And I said, well, what if I did it over a hundred times in different ways? Would I still be lucky? She said, yeah, I definitely think you'd have special powers. Like, that's kind of freaky. And then she went on her way and kind of did more handstands and cartwheels and twirls. But that's like, and as I thought, like, that's exactly why John wrote this. Because Jesus fulfilled over a hundred prophetic instances that were recorded several hundred years, some close to a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth. And those are just the ones about Jesus. There are hundreds more fulfilled prophecies throughout the Bible. And just like my nine-year-old daughter knows, a few can be lucky, but hundreds, that's something special. That's from God. New City, this is yet another of many reasons to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Many different people across thousands of years said he would do exactly what he did, and he did it multiple times. And for some of the critics out there, the thought might be, well, Jesus did these things as part of the entire scheme to make people think that he was the Messiah. But what I love all about all of this was that Jesus didn't do several of them. In fact, as we saw today, several that were fulfilled in John's gospel, like dividing his clothes and the sour wine and piercing his side, those were done by Jesus' opponents. Like the soldiers did those things, not Jesus. Again, John highlights the fulfillment of prophecy around Jesus' crucifixion because it's one thing to say that Jesus died, but it's an entirely different thing to say that Jesus died as the Son of God, just as it was prophesied and predicted. And the reason it's so important that Jesus died as the Son of God was so that our sins could be paid in full, so that we could be pure before God, because if Jesus wasn't God, then our sins would not be paid. He'd just be another dead man that was crucified. But the fact that Jesus was the Son of God, and that our sins were paid in full by his death and resurrection, then we can declare, just as Jesus claimed in his final breath in John 19, 30, we can declare, it is finished. Which leads us to number three, the finished work. And in our final point, I want us to consider the implications of the crucifixion and and Jesus' death and his shed blood. I want us to think about the implications of the finished work of Christ going to the cross for us here today. Because as we said at the beginning, Jesus didn't just die. Jesus died as a confirmation of his great love for us. Jesus died so that we could have, he could have us in, in his kingdom forever. And in this final point, I want to draw out two implications for us. That if Jesus did not die on the cross, thinking kind of of the opposite or the inverse. So so letter A, so if if Jesus' work was not finished, letter A, we're still in our sins. And so let's think about this, because if we're still in our sins, then we're separated from God. And maybe you've been coming around for a while, or you've been in church for a while, and you've heard, maybe you've heard this a thousand times. And And you're like me, and we just forget the importance of this. So just think about this. If we're still in our sins and we're separated from God, we're then separated from our forever source of satisfaction in life, like we talked about. Which leads me to say, if we're still in our sins and separated from God, we're left with the world to satisfy us. And every person on the planet, I think at some level, understands the disappointment of the world. Sometimes life seems great and the world seems kind of fun. And sometimes life seems like it's in the pits. But the only thing that will forever and always satisfy us is Jesus. And as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is our bread of life, our living water. Jesus gives us everything we need. He is our only source of satisfaction that will never let us down. 
It may not come in the way we want it or how we may think it should come, but Jesus, he, w- he has promised us that he will be our sustainer no matter the circumstance. Jesus will be our good shepherd and our source of life. New City, I can promise you that without fail, me and our other pastors, we will let you down and disappoint you in some way. Isn't that just encouraging? I pray that it doesn't happen. But guess what? We're flawed, limited humans, and it will happen, like guaranteed. Your friends, they will let you down. They, too, are flawed and limited people. Your family, your roommates, your job, your teachers, your spouse, your kids, it is certified 100% guaranteed that they will disappoint you and they will let you down in some way. Like your school, your work, your career, your body, they will all disappoint you and fail. Like absolutely 100% guaranteed. Like you will die. (laughs) It will happen. You will not live forever. So just be encouraged today. But can I tell you who will never disappoint you? Jesus. Jesus, he will never let you down. He will always satisfy you. And I know this seems like the Sunday school answer, but it is still true. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you, to always be with you and to live in you and to comfort you. Will it always be easy? No. But will Jesus always be satisfying? Yes. 100% without fail. And you know what keeps us from this satisfaction? Our sin and the brokenness of the world. But do you know what gives us a way back? It's the blood of Jesus, the cross. Each and every day, Jesus says to us, my cross, it's still sufficient. Come and feast and be satisfied. Your sins are forgiven. But if we're still in our sins and separated from God, that's not possible. Our eternal source of satisfaction is gone. And along these same lines, if we're still in our sins and separated from God, do you know what else we don't have? We're left without a guide and direction. New City, God created us for a purpose. God's our counselor and our guide. He shows us how to live and where to go. And in doing this, he gives us full life. And if and being left in our sins and separated from God would kind of be like, just imagine this, just waking up in a foreign country, not being able to speak the language, not even sure what the language is, Without any way of communication, no phone, no money, you have no clue where you are. Yeah, you kind of figure it out and stumble along. But just think with me. If you wake up in a foreign country, completely don't know where you are, how much better would it be to have a guide that knows all and sees all, that is with you every step of the way, that knows the language, can show you all the sweet spots of the city and can say, like, eat this, don't eat that. Follow me, like, let me show you this cool place. I've got some incredible things to show you. I've got a journey to take you on. You see, that, you know what, that's what the cross does for us. You know what the death of Jesus does for us? Jesus gives us access to the God who made us, created us, and guides us. The cross of Christ is the way in which we are able to be guided by God. If we're still in our sins and separated from God, we're left figuring out this life on our own. Why? Because we're still in our sins. And so if Jesus' work was not finished, letter A, we're still in our sins, but letter B, our access to God is based on our works. So if Jesus did not pay for our sins at the cross, then in order for us to be with God and have access to our satisfaction in God, then it's based on our own good works. It's based on what we do. It's based on our merits. Which I hate to break it to us today, the odds of our good works are not great. Like it's not possible. But what I want to point out here and focus on is that because of the finished work of Jesus, we don't have to keep striving and trying to please God. 
You know what Catholic theology teaches? It teaches you have to keep making sacrifices and keep having our sins paid for. And so every week, people will go to Mass, take communion to get their sins paid for. And they believe that the water and the wine become Jesus' literal body and blood and that he dies yet again to pay for their sins. And we have to say to that, no. Jesus at the cross said, it is finished. Jesus' work was complete. We don't have to keep making sacrifices for God to be pleased with us. When Jesus went to the cross, he paid in full our sins, past, present, and future. His work was finished and complete. And you know what this means for us? We don't have to work for our salvation. We don't have to work for God to be pleased with us. We don't have to have a checklist of things to do in order for God to accept us. We don't have to worry thinking that when trials come, thinking that God is punishing us for our sins. No! God is not some angry father that is sitting up in heaven waiting for us to do everything right that loves us based on our performance on what we do or don't do. No, absolutely not. God is a father that loves us unconditionally, solely, entirely based on the finished work of the cross and nothing else. And when we mess up yet again and disobey God or go against the desired plan for our life, God does not shame us and scold us, demanding us to make things right. No, not at all. God looks at us and says, the cross paid it for you. The cross paid your price. You are my son, my daughter whom I love. New City Church, the cross of Christ is our love letter to us from God. And when we forget that we're loved, when we think that we're not worthy, we look to the cross where Jesus died. When he was gasping for air, he saw you and me and he thought, it's worth it. I will die for you. The cross of Christ, the death of Jesus, declaring that our standing before God is not based on what we do, but what Jesus has done. Christian, rejoice in that again today. Look to the cross and let it remind you of God's love for you. Jesus, he finished his work. We can rest and rejoice and worship knowing that we have access to God, that he will satisfy and direct us with purpose. And also knowing that it's not up to you to make God happy because Jesus did that for you and me. He, he, he made God happy for us at the cross. And so I want to end with this. You know, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, there were two groups of people that we saw, and John pointed them out back in verse 23 to 27 of John 19. There were four soldiers that divided Jesus' garments, casting lots, mocking Jesus, trying to get souvenirs of his clothes, and then right after that, in stark contrast, four women that were grieving Jesus on the cross, likely weeping and mourning, one of which was Jesus' mother. And so we've got the four mocking soldiers and the four women that deeply loved Jesus. And both groups of people, they witnessed Jesus' death. They saw him hanging on the cross. But as the story continues, only one group truly loved Jesus. The soldiers were thrilled by the souvenirs. They were having a little fun with Jesus. They were intrigued by Jesus enough to want a souvenir of Jesus. But they didn't love him. But the other group, the women, they loved Jesus. So let me ask, which group are you in? And as you consider that question, like, do you love Jesus and believe in him? Then I want to invite you today to take communion with us. But if you can't say that, I want to ask you to not take communion with us. And this is not to isolate you or reject you. Communion is for us to celebrate the death of Christ and the implications of his shed blood. Communion is for those that say the cross is God's letter to us and the cross is not a souvenir. 
Maybe today for the first time you can say, yes, I want Jesus. I want to give my life to Jesus. And if that's the case, we'd love for you to celebrate with us through communion and tell us so that we can walk this journey with us. And maybe next week we can celebrate with you through baptism. Let's pray. God, you're good in all that we do. God, I don't know who's in this room that has not yet professed faith in Jesus, but God, I pray that they would see the beauty of the cross. That they would see it not as some artifact or some souvenir or some just historical uh, thing, but God, they would see it as a love letter written to us, each individually and corporately all together for us. God, the cross was sufficient. Would we see the satisfaction of the cross? That what we, would we see what we gained in the cross today? God, you're good. We love you. We love you. And you ask this in Jesus.